Well, let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. As I was uh, saving my notes uh, earlier in the week, uh, I guess I should have come, saw it coming, but I was a little bit surprised when I, when I did note that today is the 100th sermon, our 100th sermon uh, study in the book of Ephesians, and we have a few to go yet. Um, I remember clearly talking to my wife at the beginning and thinking, I, th- I think, it'll, think it'll probably take about 40 sermons to get through Ephesians, and she laughed at me, that woman that God gave me. So uh, just so thankful to the Lord. I don't know how we could have gone any faster, to be honest. Uh, in a lot of places, we could have done a deeper dive. The richness of God's Word is just so amazing every single week that He allows us to study it. I want to read uh, the paragraph for us, verses 10 through 18. We'll be looking today at another part of what we affectionately call the believer's armor, specifically clutching the shield of faith. Let me read that paragraph for us, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, Asia Minor, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist In the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod or literally sandaled your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. One of the most dramatic and consequential scenes in the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth happened in the wilderness of Judea. It was a desert wilderness between the uh, Dead Sea and the city of Jerusalem. This encounter with the devil came right after Jesus' baptism. He was baptized in the Jordan River and then proceeded basically up the the trail toward uh, Jerusalem where there was a wilderness there, a desert, where he would engage and encounter the devil. This battle lasted 40 days, 40 days where he was fasting. In that desolate desert wasteland, the devil and Jesus were isolated in cosmic battle where Satan attempted to use his best strategies of temptation to influence Jesus to succumb to sin. That was his great effort. The Lord was tempted to turn stones into bread. And you know, after weeks of hunger, you can see where if you had the ability to do that, that would be a temptation. He tempted Jesus to bow down to himself, Satan himself, 
He tempted Jesus to climb up on the pinnacle of the temple and to jump off and let angels catch him and save him and put God to the test. If Satan could lure Jesus to give, to give in to any of these temptations, he could win over Jesus. But the scripture records that Jesus never gave in to one temptation. Not then or the rest of his life. After the three temptations, Jesus comes out of the desert unscathed, untarnished, without sin, and without sinning. Not long after that, Jesus is back up in Galilee, about 100 miles north, and gathers a large crowd on a a hillside and delivers what we affectionately call the Sermon on the Mount. And part of that sermon, he taught on prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer probably by heart very well. You've probably sung it. You know the melody that people have put alongside it. Part of that prayer, one of the things Jesus taught, the way he taught the disciples and us to pray, is this little phrase, lead us not into what? Temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Where do you think that was? Why do you think that was so important for him to to teach on prayer. Well, he had just been tempted in these 40 days in an intensive way. Lead us not to temptation. This does not mean, by the way, don't bring us to the place of any temptation. The rest of the New Testament affirms that we'll always face temptation this side of heaven. So that's not what he meant. Or even, don't allow us to be tempted. Because in 1 Corinthians 10.31, we see that temptation gives us an opportunity to find a way of escape to glorify God. Nor does it cause any of us to say, well, God, he's saying, God, don't tempt us because James chapter 1 verse 13 says that God never tempts anyone. No, Jesus is teaching us to pray for divine assistance, not to fall to temptation, to be strong, to stand firm in the evil day and to resist in Paul's language to the Ephesians. Consequently, when we give in to temptation, when we sin, we only have ourselves to blame. But there's another phrase. There's another phrase I want you to reconsider this morning. And I'm on good standing with scholarship to make this assertion, okay? You'll notice that in Ephesians 6, verse 16, at the very end, he talks about the evil one. You see that? If you have a New American Standard, that word one is in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek language, but it's implied. It's because of the nature of the, the way this, this uh, noun is, is constructed, it probably means the evil one. That exact same construction Jesus uses in Matthew 6 in teaching the disciples the Lord's Prayer, as we call it. Deliver us from... Evil, that's the way we remember, remember it and memorize it, is probably best translated, but deliver us from the evil one. Which would make perfect sense after doing battle with the devil for 40 days that he would say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's the exact same Greek construction. So I think it's probably the right way to understand that is Jesus is talking about defense against the devil's onslaught against us and our souls in the same categories, in the same way that Paul is here in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 16 again. In addition to all, 
after having put on these other pieces of armor, taking up the shield of faith which will, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, if you are backwards, this is the evil one, this is the devil, who is slinging arrows at believers for which we should have a defense. Paul calls the devil the evil one. He's wicked. This is an apt shorthand description of Satan. He's wicked, he's evil. He's perverse and he's perverted. He's malevolent, malicious, and devious. He's deceptive, disguising, desires spiritual ruin and disaster in your life. He uses temptation and sin to dissuade unbelievers to looking to Christ and the gospel, and he uses sin and temptation to rob believers of effectiveness and assurance. Now, we've studied the nature and the person of Satan for many weeks as we entered into this section in Ephesians chapter 6, and we've noted that what Paul is aiming at is clearly outlined there in verse 11 to be on the defense against the schemes of the devil. And it's the word from which we get the English word method, the methods of the devil, his strategies, his attempts, his uh, uh, um, approaches. And we noted that his approaches are at the same time both universal and specific. What I mean by that is this. He only has, we'll come back to this in a minute, three primary attacks. First John chapter 2, verse 14 to 16 say, all this in the world, and he gives us three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, meaning that those are the primary avenues of temptation. And every sin that you and I ever commit can be traced back to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life, or a combination of those. Well, if those are the three, by the way, those are the three categories that Jesus was tempted in in the wilderness. He's throwing arrows at us. And the defense that Paul tells us to wield against these flaming arrows, as we'll see in a minute, being cast at us, shot at us, is faith. Let me remind you of what Paul's doing. He's in, in a house. He's in house arrest in Rome. He is uh, under the guard of, a, no doubt, a Roman uh, uh, legionnaire or centurion who is standing there, probably trading places with shifts with another uh, set of Roman soldiers. And he's watching these soldiers come in and out, and they have this armor on. They have this battle engagement array on. And he looks at them, and he understands that their defensive armor is protective for the battle that they do. And it clicks with him to use that as an illustration for how a believer is to be defended against the onslaughts of his enemy, the devil, her enemy, the devil. So in verse 16, he has another illustrative element, but this one's different than the ones before. He talked about girding your loins with truth, which was to pull the, the four corners of a tunic that would be over the head with a, with a hole up through the belt and to gird them so that you could create kind of a, 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 an embattled miniskirt, if that was the, so you could run around and your legs would be free and you could, you could have a, a, be ambulatory. So he says, gird yourself with truth, which makes sense since John 8, 44 says that Satan is the father of lies, right? Then he says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And this is the righteousness of Christ, and this is righteous living. 
In other words, Satan wants us to commit unrighteous acts. One defense against that is to protect our vitals. That's what a breastplate does, like a bulletproof vest, as it were, that protects our vitals from unrighteousness because we are living righteously and appropriating the righteousness of Christ and not our own. Then last week we looked at, he says, shod, which is an interesting word, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. It really just means it's a... It's a noun that's turned into a verb. Sandal your feet. Literally put your cleats on. These were hobnailed sandals that were meant to give traction in hand-to-hand combat so you wouldn't be pushed around. He says, put the cleats of the gospel of peace. You are stabilized by understanding that we have peace with God. We have the peace of God. And that blessed are those who make peace. We are extending it as well. Then verse 16 says... In addition to all, not only the stuff you wear, but there's something else you should take up. Taking up, picking up literally, holding the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Paul is pointing in. There there are several words for shields. This is thyreos. It was a shield that was two and a half feet wide by four feet long. The outside was covered with leather. And this is important, before a battle was soaked in water so that the leather would would be super moist. Why? Because one of the primary attacks of the enemy of of all armies that time was for archers to pay, uh, to, to get to the front of the line and they would dip their their tips, the sharp tips, in pitch or in pine tar, and then they would shoot the arrows to try to cause fire within the ranks of the enemy. And if your wooden shield was not treated with leather and soaked in water, it would stick into it, and before you could pull it out, it would catch the, the shield on fire. It provided protection on the top of the armor. The shield could block arrows. Some of your translations might say darts. As well as extinguish them because it was covered with this wet leather. There's accounts in historians where as a battle would rage on late in the day, these were most effective because they wouldn't have time to re-soak the, the leather and they were susceptible to not being able to extinguish these arrows as they were flying. The shield of faith protected the other pieces of armor as well as the wearer. That's why Paul says, in addition to this. Now, that's the illustration. That's the shield he's holding. But the question becomes, well, what does it illustrate? All of these pieces of armor illustrate a spiritual virtue or a spiritual discipline. This illustrates the shield of what? Faith. Faith. The shield of faith is made up of an important disposition in the Christian mind. The concept is simple. A Christian's unbendable belief system, their unbendable faith in the Lord can stop, can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one that are aimed at you right now. Can I add a layer to that? Friends, there are arrows from the enemy in the air right now aimed at you. This is not faith in faith. 
don't know if you know what I mean by that, but I remember growing up and having some friends who were of a certain denomination, and they would basically tell me if I wanted something to happen, I had to have enough faith. Well, that's faith in faith. Um, your faith is in the Lord. Uh, the, the passage begins, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might, not in the strength of your faith. Your faith, your weak faith, is stronger than non-faith. What is faith? What is faith? Can I give you a big, huge, massive definition that's tongue-in-cheek? Faith is taking God at His word. It's believing God. It's believing what the Scriptures say, because that's where God speaks. It is belief with confidence. It means believing true things instead of false things. It means believing right things instead of wrong things. And faith, even back in the Older Testament, was always a, 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 a shield. And God was enabling the, the believer to hide behind him because of their faith in him. And he would be the shield. Remember Psalm 18, verse 1? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the strength of my salvation and stronghold. He is my shield. Psalm 18, verse 30, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He, God, is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. So don't have any trouble saying, the shield of faith is believing that God is my shield. Those are one and the same. Do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you have faith in God as your shield? Faith is the consequence of what you think and how you think. Faith is the consequence of what you think and how you think. It's living out what you believe to be true. In 1 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter says, We are protected by the power of God through faith through what we believe. And perhaps, and you have to expect this is coming, perhaps the most definitive explanation of faith is in one chapter in the Bible, in the New Testament, right? We call it the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, which would be worthy of a whole study and deep dive, but listen to how this begins. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is, now whatever comes next is important because the Bible is defining faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This is not hope like, you know, I, I, I hope I get what I want for Christmas. This is hope like, I hope I enjoy my birthday, which is different because I know it's going to happen. It's, it's an assurance of things hoped for, certain realities, not things that are possibilities. Faith is the assurance of things hoped in, hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. Super important word, not seen. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's in the heavenlies. This is invisible warfare, but real nonetheless. Now, I think it's interesting, just to, as a little aside, how the writer to the Hebrews begins this explanation of the chapter of, of faith, in this chapter of faith. Verse 2 of Hebrews 1, For by it, faith... Men of old gained approval. 
By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. This is incredible because he's saying, if you want to bolster your faith, there's a place you start. Genesis 1.1. If you don't believe the first chapters of Genesis, where do you start? Where the snake talks in chapter 3? I mean, where do you begin? Second Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, this is going to the, what, what the writer just said. It's, it's invisible. That's the world we fight in, uh, the world in which we fight the fight of faith. We walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. They're not physical, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. Listen to these mental terms. Speculations of every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ's faith. Faith is won or lost. Faith is exercised in your thinking, in how you think, in what you think. A few verses later in Hebrews eleven six, the writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, without believing. And there's, faith has a series of nouns and participles and verbs. Pistis, pistuo, pistos. It all means believing what God has said. The writer says, if you, if you don't have faith, you cannot please God. That's a big statement. Say faith in what? Not faith in faith. Faith in in what God has said. In fact, in Romans 14, 23, Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And we'll talk about what those possibilities are in just a moment. So how do we live by faith as Christians? How do we wield this defensive shield of faith? How do we take up the shield of faith? I like this definition. We alluded to it a few times, faith is taking God at his word and acting upon it. But there's a caveat. Especially and even when it makes no sense to believe it. You read down through the pictures of faith in Hebrews 11 and there's one common theme. What they believed made no sense. Logically, I mean, think of the, the, the great apex of that chapter where he says, Abraham takes Isaac. He's going to go up to Moriah and kill him. And he believed that he would kill him and God would raise him from the dead. Does that make sense to anyone? How do you think that went with Sarah? Hey, Sarah, I'm, I'm going to go kill our son and then God's going to raise him from the dead. I'm not sure if, I don't know. I don't know how that conversation went or if it, even if it happened. You believe God even when and especially when it makes no logical or human sense. The peace of God which passes comprehension will guard your heart. You cannot live by faith and wield the shield of faith without, <laughs> without reading the content of what we believe, which is God's word, the Bible. 
What a gift we have of living in this generation and this day when we have... I mean, I, I have my Bible on my phone. I mean, it's incredible. Can you imagine trying to explain this to someone in like 1750? I mean, where they had probably one Bible in the community and it was chained to the pulpit? It's impossible to live by faith without knowing what God has said in His Word. Yes, this is the Read Your Bible More sermon. It, I think all of these pieces of armor point to that. And the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 teaches us that men and women from biblical history lived lives of faith, and it went well for them, but not always in this life. Some were sawn in half. Some were fed to beasts. But it went well for them with the Lord in the end. People have lived by faith in the past. And Hebrews 11 says you can do the same in the present. So where we are, let me remind you, Paul affirms that the Christians are in a spiritual battle with Satan and demonic forces. According to verse 12, this is not according to uh, flesh and blood, but heavenly places. These creatures are powerful, vicious, deceptive, smart, creative. They not only know the generality of how temptation works for everyone, but they know how it works with you. They never sleep. They're probably assigned to you. And they're watching you all the time. They followed you in their church. They're probably sitting in this room or standing or hovering. I don't know what they do, but they're here. They're watching. And they know what tempts you. And tempting you is different than what tempts someone else. They're experts in temptation and expert in what tempts you. I mean, the illustration, as we've used before, is that some people in a dietary a, a, a delicacy with a steak would be tempted to put mushrooms on a steak. That would never tempt me. That would be anathema. That would be awful. That, that's, that's, mushrooms are fungi. We, listen, we, we can talk about this later. And if you eat them, our prayer room will be open at the end of the, of the course. We're happy to help you. But, but all silliness aside, mushrooms don't tempt me. I don't like them but they, do, they would be tempting to someone else who does. The enemy of your soul knows exactly what tempts you. So as Paul considers this cosmic warfare, he looks at this Roman soldier guarding him and he takes note of his armor, becomes this illustration for spiritual defense. Now, what I want to do is similar to what we did the last couple of weeks because the, the verse is pretty straightforward. I want to be a little bit pastoral and just try to do some counseling of all of us if I can and how to apply this shield of faith. So I want to note with you, the shield of faith protects the believer from four categories of demonic temptation. Now I'm sure there's more, but it's, it's minimally these four. And these have come up in my soul care and my shepherding and, and counseling, and I th think they might be helpful to consider with you. Four Categories of demonic temptation, and the shield of faith protects against them. The first is believing wrong or errant biblical interpretations. I mean, think about it. If, if you were Satan, and you said the believer's source of faith is the Bible, then your first attack would be to dislodge that confidence and that faith in the Word. The most important question a believer must answer is this. 
What does the Bible say about any given topic or subject? What does it say? And is that my authority? Equally important, though, is not just what the Bible says, but what does the Bible mean by what it says? This is why we have such an accent on good biblical hermeneutics. Those are principles of interpretation. And our pillars are, we believe in a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to Scripture. Literal means that God said what He meant and meant what He said. It doesn't mean literal that doesn't include uh, um, figurative language. For example, the psalmist says, From the rising of the sun until its setting, praise be your name. Well, the sun doesn't rise and set, the earth rotates. So is the Bible wrong because it does that? No, it includes figurative language. Literal, historical. The Bible is written in a historical context, meaning we need to say, we need to figure out what the original author said to the original audience. Literal, historical, grammatical. The grammar matters. Every jot and tittle. Is it a prepositional phrase? Is it a, is it a subject? Is it a predicate? Is it an active or a, or a passive verb? Is it a stative verb? What's a, what are the participles doing? The grammar matters. Every single word matters. That's why we study so deeply. And then the last is probably the most important, which is literal, historical, grammatical, contextual context. First three most important words of real estate are what? Location, location, location. The first three words of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. Usually what comes before and what comes after any verse, paragraph, pericope gives you the insight into what it means. In the life of a believer, Satan's most aggressive attack then, his most effective is to tempt and influence a believer to question and to doubt God's word. 2 Peter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Listen to these mental thinking words again. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's a pretty comprehensive promise through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Where do we find that knowledge? Only in God's word. So can you, will you trust the Bible to be your final source of authority on matters of your soul? Now, there are some pushbacks against this, some some outright Distrust. No, the Bible is untrustworthy and I'm not going to believe it. Some integrate it with other worldviews. We'll come back to that in a moment just diluting its impact and its influence. And others assign the Bible with some authority, but not final authority. How do you wield the shield of faith? I think part of that is resisting two words. These these are the most dangerous two words to your soul regarding the Bible. The word and and the word but. The word and is threatening when things like this come into your heart. I know the Bible says what it says, and psychology says, fill in the blank. I know the Bible says what it says, and the church fathers say, fill in the blank. I know what the Bible says, and the creeds and confessions say, or the Book of Mormon, or the Pope, or the Magisterium say, when they all have disagreed with each other in the past. And is a dangerous, dangerous word when it comes to your Bible. So is the word but. I know the Bible says what it says, but 
that was a different time and culture. No one thinks like that anymore. I know the Bible says what it says, but we know more now from science and technology than they ever did, so it can't be true. I know what the Bible says, but the Bible is too old, and we have such advanced knowledge over those writers. It's called modern-day presentism, looking with disdain at everything in the past. Ah, listen, friends, be careful of saying the Bible says and then inserting the word and, or the Bible says and inserting the word but. Are you vulnerable to errant biblical interpretations and faulty hermeneutics? Do you, will you believe the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant, infallible, clear, and ultimate authority of God? Let me give you a sentence that that I, I hope is easy to swallow, but it's super important. Nothing, nothing defines you more than your view of Scripture. Nothing. Satan knows that. That's why he fires so many arrows at our convictions about God's Word. He wants to confuse you to think God's Word is an authority, not the authority. So believing errant biblical interpretations is a category of demonic temptation for a believer. Secondly, we should be holding the shield of faith to defend against believing deceptive feelings. Believing deceptive feelings. In other words, we use how we feel as our litmus test of truth rather than what God has said. And this almost always comes down to this word that we've looked at before, enough or enough-ism. Enough-ism is the quicksand of the soul, and it's rooted in our feelings. Well, I don't feel like I pray enough, so God must not be on my side. I don't feel like I've suffered enough, so God must not have punished me enough. I don't feel like, and you fill in the blank. Praise our loving Heavenly Father that our feelings are not are not the switcher of the tracks like in a railroad where he decides how to move toward us or or away from us based on how we feel. Look, feelings aren't bad, always. They can be, but we've said so many times, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know? That's faith, what do I believe? I mean, I I like good feelings and I don't like bad feelings. Uh, My grandkids were in our our, our house a couple weeks ago and I felt really good about that. And when they left, I felt really bad about that. Feelings are just responses. Let's start with how we feel. Feel about salvation because that's where the shield of faith, what we believe, I think has its most ardent defense. This is the doctrine of faith alone, sola fide, This was the material principle of the Reformation. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, oh, such a... Every time I read that, I just want to stop and say thank you, thank you, thank you for this truth. For by grace, God's gift, you have been saved through what? Faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, what you do, and if it was, you would brag about it. That's why he says, so that no one may boast. Pretty clear. So I think part of the first 
Defense in wielding that shield of faith is to believe the right things about what faith does in our salvation. I, um, I remember where I was sitting. I was in a coffee shop. It was a little embarrassing when we were studying through Romans. I was in Romans chapter 4, uh, end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, um, and looking ahead at, at 6, and just reflecting on the fact that God uses Abraham as... Righteousness was given to him, imputed to him because of his faith, not because of anything he did, because he believed God and God reckoned it, considered him righteous. And I just remember being overwhelmed and weeping in a coffee shop about how can it be this simple? (laughs) How can it be this simple that my entire eternity can be secured by believing, by having faith in what God has done for me in the gospel? Incredible. No one ever sat in a boardroom and invented a religion like that. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For it's the righteousness of God revealed from heaven, from faith to faith. We grow from faith to faith in our walk with Christ. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So be careful that you don't let your feelings rob you of understanding what God has done independent of your feelings. I think one of the things that Satan loves to do is whisper, well, you don't feel accepted. You don't feel uh, like a recipient of grace. You don't feel like a recipient of mercy You don't feel assurance, so you're at odds with God. Listen, sometimes emotions can be incredible, healthy, good things, and sometimes they are the wrong responses. There's a passage that's ministered to me so much over the years regarding feelings. You know the story. Jeremiah, for 40 years, tells the inhabitants of Jerusalem, repent or God will judge. Repent or God will judge. Repent or God will judge. And it was so bad that they began making fun of him. They were making up songs. Kids were singing songs of derision about Jeremiah the prophet. And then finally it happened. Nebuchadnezzar comes and ransacks Jerusalem, levels the temple, Jeremiah goes up on the Mount of Olives, looks across at Jerusalem burning, and he pins, he writes a funeral dirge for a once proud city composed of five poems. In the exact middle of that is chapter three, and he wrestles with his own feelings. But you can hear faith snuff out feelings. Faith trump feelings in chapter three. I don't have the time to get into all of it, but listen to this. (laughs) Lamentations 3.17. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. Have you ever felt that way? I have. In rare moments, I have forgotten happiness. My feelings have overwhelmed me. Jeremiah says, so I say my strength has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. You ever felt like that? If you haven't, can I be a faithful shepherd to say, You probably will. 
Remember my affliction and my wondering, my wormwood and my bitterness. Surely my soul remembers it's bowed down before me. He's broken. This I recall to mind. Everything changes with that sentence. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. What happened? What happens between verse 19 and verse 20? Faith, the shield of faith, guarded his emotions. The Lord's loving kindnesses, I love this plural, loving kindnesses, never cease. His compassions never fail. This is a man watching his friends die and Jerusalem burn and says, God is still, God is still faithful. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, says my soul, I have hope in him. That's what the shield of faith allows. Then he goes down. I wish I could read the whole chapter. Verse 37, there's a marked change to what Jeremiah believes in the anchor of his faith. He asks three questions, and we've talked about this before. These are, these are not questions. These are statements, and we, we understand a question is a statement. Every husband does when his wife says, are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? That, that's, that's not a question. That's a statement. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Nobody. No one can ransack God's city and destroy God's temple unless God is involved. His sovereignty is there. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill, wonder and calamity go forth? God is still in charge and God is still faithful and good in the midst of calamity. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Are you really, what are you complaining about? Have you looked at your heart? Jeremiah says. So I think the shield of faith protects us from being lost in our feelings and interpreting the way we feel as absolute truth rather than what God says. Number three, I know you, you've heard this so many times. Any one of these could be a whole series or sermons. Somebody said, yeah, that's what your pastor says when he runs out of things to say. Um, believing natural intuition this is very quick. Believing natural intuition. That's a, that's a dart that he throws at us. That's an arrow he's cast at us, a flaming arrow. It's closely related to acting on feelings, but a little nuanced differently than how we feel and more about how we believe and what we think about ourselves. Believing natural intuition is thinking that we can live and figure out life by our own wisdom. In one sense, the whole book of Proverbs is a series of lessons not to do this. Not to lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth. These sound so much like the attributes of the armor. Let kindness and truth leave you, but bind them around your neck so that, and write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and a man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean where? On your own understanding, your own intuition. In all your ways, not some, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Sometimes smart people are hard to counsel because they think they got it figured out. But boast in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. 
Are your decisions day by day, hour by hour, informed by God, informed by God's word, or are these decisions made according to your intuition and your personal wisdom? And then lastly, this is more immediate in the text. Shield of faith protects the believer from four categories of temptation. The fourth category is believing sinful world views. We've been taking note of this since our study of Ephesians chapter 2. Think about the worldview here. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the fact that Satan is working as ruler and influencer in this world. There is a, there is, is a, is a widespread way of understanding the world independent of God that he's being very successful at luring people to think. We too, Paul even includes himself, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Satan has been granted temporary rule and leadership on this planet. And his aim is to keep unbelievers from exercising faith in the gospel and in Christ and to dislodge believers' faith in the Bible and in Christ away from that and into and onto other things. <laughs> then first four, the, perhaps the two sweetest words in the Bible, but God, but God. In the worst case scenario of our train-wrecked souls, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul writes. Still, we're embattled against demons and powers that are against us, that are for the enemy. That's why he says back in verse 12, struggles not against flesh and blood, but against... Rulers, powers. Here's an interesting phrase. The world forces of this darkness. That's a dark worldview, and it is pervasive in this, on this planet. It's coming from the halls of governmental institutions, and we need the shield of faith to guard us against these flaming arrows of world thinking. Non-biblical worldviews always humanize God. They bring God to our level. They deify man. They make man more important than he really is in his own heart. And they minimize sin. And again, what we've talked about so many times in this study. Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and call good evil. Just in the, just in the realm of the sexual revolution that we're watching our country and our culture and the world begin to just bathe in. We're witnessing these worldviews for which we need a shield of believing the right things of faith. For example, making homosexuality an alternative lifestyle instead of calling it sin. Normalizing transgenderism and saying that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. Considering premarital sex as acceptable, even preferable declassifying pornography from perversion and sin to a harmless form of entertainment. If you're going to wield the shield of faith, you should expect 
Satan's arrows to fly at you. Can I just offer a word of warning and expectation? If you wield the shield of faith, which is ultimately believing God and his word, if you do that, you should expect some accusations. You'll be called anti or non-scientific. I've been told that. You don't believe in science. You'll be called unintelligent. What kind of idiot believes the things that you believe about the Bible? That's not true. You'll be called simple-minded. You'll be called intolerant, and we are. Because God is intolerant that anyone can come to him except through his son. And our intolerance has hope, not division. You'll be called backwards and uninformed, old-fashioned and outdated. In a world, you, in a word, you will be called stupid and foolish for believing God's word and taking up the shield of faith. And Paul said that, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word, the message of the cross, Christianity, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. It's like Paul huddles everybody up in the corner and says, I know what they're saying, and it's okay, because we're right. And God is faithful, and God is true, and we can believe him. You cannot hold the shield of faith unless you have faith in God's Son and you believe the good news that Christ died for sinners who would place their faith in him. He was buried three days. He rose from the dead to prove who he was and that he is eternal God, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father praying for those who are his. If you're a believer, we can praise God for that and wield that shield of faith, which we believe. If you're not, what a great Sunday for you to be here with these people and this passage to, to hear of the, the invitation that you can, you can turn your back on everything that's pulled you away from God and he will receive you. He will receive you as a son or a daughter by believing the good news of the gospel. Father, give us the untarnished faith that we need. Thank you for showing us the power of faith, of believing you over any other flaming arrow that the enemy would throw at us. Dismiss us now with a new vigor to hold, clutch, cling to the shield of faith in what you've said and in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.